We've been these last weeks looking at the topic of grace giving, really, is what we've been looking at. This message would be rightly titled, God Supplies Wealth for His Glory. You know, non-charismatics, I use that term in general, not after one movement, not one church, um, but rather there can be charismatics and there are charismatics in Baptist churches, Methodist churches, Presbyterian churches. I'm not so foolish to think that we don't have charismatics here. If you are charismatic, then, you know, I believe that there are parts of your theology which give light to us. And and so I don't discredit all that the charismatic has done, uh, movement has done in this nation. I'm a lot more reticent at this point in my life to cast stones at them. It's easy to sit back and mock them and make fun of them. It's not so easy sometimes to see what they offer us from a sincere heart, from their understanding of the Scripture. One of the areas in which I think they hold a great instruction for us is in the area of giving. It's no mistake that these churches lead in our community in helping the poor. It's no mistake that these are the churches which rally behind the cause of being a channel of blessing into the misfortunate and the abandoned in our community. Have you ever stopped to think, why are the conservative, doctrinally pure churches not involved in this work? Why? I have in my own life. And for this church, thought, why is it that these who are... and Admittedly, humbly I say, they are wrong on so many points of their theology and yet they get this point right. So many of them do. Now, that's not to say that their doctrine is pure in this area either. I'm not saying that they rightly apply everything when it comes to practical application. We're dealing with a text of Scripture which is abused in our day to preach health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. In other words, this is the way that gospel goes. If you come to Jesus, you get a Rolls Royce. If you come to Jesus, your savings account will triple this year. If you want it to go ten times, give me what's in your savings account. And then, when you give me what's three times, God will make it ten times. Or a hundred times. Or a thousand times. There's no no shortage of what the world calls charlatans in our world. People who are plying the trade of the pulpit to reap a great benefit for themselves. And it's also not hard to identify it, is it? I mean, it's really not. You flip around tonight. I give you permission tonight. Flip around with a humble spirit if you can. And watch these charlatans apply their trade. And I'm not, uh, you know, beyond uh, doing that myself. And I also sin sometimes because I get, my my wife has to holler at me from the other room because she refuses to watch these people. They make her so angry. She just doesn't watch it. She's so smart, so wise. I'm not. I like to watch it and then talk to the TV like that guy can hear me. (laughs) 
You know, and she says, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? You're just getting angry. And part of what bothers me is that because they misapply 2 Corinthians 9, the conservatives have totally ripped it from the pages of Scripture. We never preach from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, where it says, So sparingly, and you will reap sparingly. So bountifully, and you will reap bountifully. Conservatives have just ripped it out and said, well, the charismatics misapply it, so we just won't apply it at all. And they're both equally wrong. When we run from the truth that's in the Bible, we're as wrong as someone who takes that truth and morphs it into our own benefit. We're just as dangerous to the Christian. Paul read Paul's words for us this morning. Paul Cato read the Apostle Paul. And these words are a stumbling block for many, I would say, even in this congregation. Paul makes some very bold statements, and we want to look at those statements today in light of the truth to apply it practically in our lives for righteousness' sake. First of all, the law of sowing and reaping applies to all areas of our lives. Look in verses 6 through 9 there in chapter 9. The point is this, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. It's a practice of mine to underline passages like that. Do you see the number of times he says all? See, what we like to do in our, in our thought process a lot of times is cut some things out because we're afraid God isn't doing what He says He's going to do. One of the areas we like to cut out in this all phrase is that if we sow monetarily into God's kingdom, He will bless us monetarily. We like to say that's just not true. And I would say, based on the authority of the Scripture, that is true. These looks. Huh? Well, read it. God is able to make all grace. All of it. Is it not grace when God blesses you with a job which brings in a salary and feeds your family and clothes them and puts a house over their roof over their head? Is that not grace? Or have we made a dichotomy of our lives to where grace only applies spiritually and we do all the work for the physical blessings in our life? Is that what we mean when we make statements like, I earn my own keep. I provide for my family. Is that, is that the dichotomy we've set up? Kind of this sacred and secular thought? I think it is. And so we back away from the table when we hear, all grace, and we say that only applies spiritually. No, it doesn't. It's all, everything in our lives, all of it. The law of sowing and reaping applies to every part of my existence. Example, you ask. Okay, I grew up on a cotton farm. If we put one seed per four feet, what kind of crop would we 
bring you? Less. Right? You know that, now we're going to get technical in farm language here, and I know this might just go right past you, but it meant a lot to me this week. You know, as I grew up, we planted something known as skip row cotton. And I know you may not know what that technical term is, but just apply your sanctified mind to this picture. Cotton traditionally is planted on 36-inch rows, okay? 36 inches. So there's a skip right here, right? 36. Skip row doubles that to 72 inches. So you have two rows spaced at 36 inches, then 72 inches, and then two rows spaced at 36 inches, and then 72 inches. Do you see that? Less seed in the ground. And their thought was in a drought, cotton will survive better and produce more if we skip that. All right? Now, logic doesn't always fit the farming world. You know, it just seems to fit. Because what grows up in that 72 inches of dirt? Weeds. You got it. So we spent a lot of time as a child hoeing, plowing, spraying, tilling, doing all this work, 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 work physically to try to keep that stuff, those weeds, from coming up in those skips, in those gaps. So long about 1991, my dad got the bright idea to go to no-till farming, 1989. Now, no-till, we put the rows at 36 inches all the way across the field, and we thought this was ingenious or something. If you plant more plants, the ground will give you more fruit, right? Oh, here, we're excited about this innovation that we've come up with, and the no-till part is we never put a plow in the field, ever, ever, never turned it over. The old men in our community used to come and watch this phenomenon, and one of them rightly said, I just can't believe this. You know, his old gruff boys had his tobacco in his mouth, his overalls on. My dad and I were standing there, and he was scolding us because we didn't turn up the dirt. You got to turn up the dirt. You got to turn it away. It'll be more productive. No. When you turn up the dirt, you just, all the water evaporates out, and you keep turning up water, and it keeps evaporating out, and you wonder why the ground's hard as a brick all the time. Right? And so we stopped tilling. And he'd say, you planting in the woods. That's what he always said. I can't believe you're planting in the woods. All that stubble, all that grass out there, dead, and you're just planting in it. You know, he couldn't understand it. And you've gone away from skip row cotton. That's the way my daddy made a living. That's what you skip that. You got to skip it. You got to be kind to the dirt and all that. You know, we just listened. Yes, sir. Went on. This old man, praise God, was gone to heaven. Five years ago, when my dad went to a concept called ultra-narrow-row cotton. Remember, cotton was planted on 36-inch rows, right? My dad plants it on 8-inch rows with a grain drill, like you plant soybeans. Do you know why he does that? Because the law of sowing and reaping applies to farming. The more seed you put in the ground, the more fruit is bare and in harvest season. Do you see it? That's what Paul's drawing on as an example. Now, that not only applies to the farm, it applies to children. If you sow sparingly into the life of your child, not training them up in the way of the Lord, you will reap what you sow. 
Your child will also reap what it sows. It applies in the area of sin. If I sow to this flesh and I give myself to to living in sin in the flesh, what will it bear? More sin taking me farther than I intended to go for longer than I intended to stay with more destruction than I could have ever imagined. Go read the book of Judges. A cycle of sin because they sowed to idolatry, they reaped from idolatry. God punished them because of sowing and reaping. It applies everywhere. Now, I've given you some bad examples. Let me give you some good examples. Let me me touch on the life and work of a man who, not any particular man, but a man who his whole Christian existence centers around how he might give away everything that he has. Do you remember the movie uh, Money? I think there's a title of it with Richard Pryor, Money, Money, Money. No, that was a song that was with it. I don't know if that's the actual title of the movie. But the point was he inherited this wealth. He was a poor guy. He inherited wealth. Okay? And what was his goal every day? Give away everything he had. He had, to, he had to give it away. And what it ended up happening in that movie was he never could give it away. I mean, he got ridiculous, like walking up just giving people scads of money. And he could not give it all away. He could not. Why? Because the more he sowed, the more he reaped. The more he gave, the more he gained. And he kept doing this process until... His bank account outstripped his abilities, his time. There's only 24 hours in a day. And, and what I would like to say to you is not this fictional character, but those, what Paul is saying, those who live the Christian life with that attitude from the heart of, I'm going to outgive the Lord, will reap beyond measure. They won't be able to outgive him. His treasure house is much bigger than ours. Okay? I know that bothers our Western mindset and it really sits hard on us in a conservative church because what we like to say is be cautious. Think out all the ways you might go bankrupt in the next 10 years. You've got to prepare for the future. We do. That's what James said, right? James said, you arrogantly say you will come to this city and do this business a year from now. What you should say is, if the Lord wills me to be here next year, I will be. And if not, then I won't be. Have you ever thought that we have a generation of Americans for the first time in history who are laying up for a future which they will never see? And they will die with full bank accounts on earth and an empty treasure in heaven. That's what Paul's concerned with. Sow bountifully. Reap bountifully. You say, give balance. No. No, I refuse. You get plenty of balance the rest of the week from all the experts of finance. What we need in the church It's passion for God and His work. And dare and adventure which would say, Oh Lord, You've called me to this work and I will give myself 110% to it. And if I die a pauper, 
I will gain heaven. That's what we need to hear. Because the gurus in finance will bounce that plenty. We live in a generation and in a society which preaches caution, security, safety, build for yourself a little kingdom here. When what we need to hear is build the kingdom of God. With my whole life. You say, don't just apply it to money. Well, it doesn't just apply to money. It applies to your time. More than any generation maybe in the history of the world, we're concerned about how much time we give to the church. You ever notice that's the only thing we're concerned about? It really is. People say, well, I'm busy at work. I work overtime. They don't complain about that because they, they get a physical check that accounts for that overtime. There's a payoff. And they can see it. But ask them to serve the Lord and they will give you every reason why they cannot do it. Because they don't have time. What are we saying when we say that? Paul's saying what we're saying is we don't believe the law of sowing and reaping. When you sow to the Lord, what you're saying is I'm not, He's not going to give back to me like my boss does. My boss is more gracious than God. That's what I'm saying. That may be what you're saying. The law of sowing and reaping applies to every area of our life. Oh, we have the rise in our generation of family planning services. Why? Because we're afraid if we sow too many children, we'll reap a whirlwind or something. You know, we even we plan everything in our life based on its financial impact. You know, Amy and I have prayed and sought the Lord and we are adopting by the will of the Lord what that will be accomplished in the future. And the number one objective I've heard to adoption is this. Have you thought about how much it's going to cost you? My answer is no. I haven't. I don't care. You may say that's reckless. I say it's trust. In the simple truth that when I sow into the life of this child, the things of God, He will grow up a bountiful return of righteousness. I believe that. And I believe whatever it takes for that to happen should happen. I believe it with all of my heart. You say, y'all are building that building over there. Have you thought about how much it's going to cost you? Yes and no. Trust me. Ask Aaron and Carlton. I have tried not to. But so many people say, you got to think practically now. You know, that's a big chunk to bite off for a little church. That's a lot of money that might. It might cost a lot of money. All these prophets of doom. And I say, did we not seek the Lord's face? And did we not all feel convicted that this is where God would have us go? And so why would we let the doomsayers tell us that God cannot do what He will do? Why do we let them tell us that? Why do we give more to our retirement account than we give to the Lord's kingdom every year? Why? Because we think that retirement account will yield fruit and we're not confident 
that sowing into the heavenly account will bear fruit. We don't believe that the law of sowing and reaping applies to every area of our life. We just don't. We need to confess that and we need to repent of it and we need to trust God. And you say, oh, preacher, if you preach like this, people are going to get reckless. I hope so. I hope so. I hope somebody loses a job because they refuse to be quiet with the gospel. Because they sow seeds and they expect to harvest. And their boss says, you can't sow seeds here. And they don't in rebellion answer him. They humbly say, whether it's right for me to obey my Lord or you, you decide. But I will sow seeds here because I believe God will give fruit. And if it costs a job, it costs a job. When's the last time an evangelical Protestant lost a job based on the gospel in this country? I would say it's not enough. It's just not enough. You say, if you preach that way now, if you, if you tell people that, they, they may go broke. We don't give that caution as often when people are sowing seeds into the stock market as if the stock market is dependable. But he's wise. He's laying up for the future. He's investing in mutual funds. He's well diversified. If he puts all his eggs in one basket, he may fail. Sounds rational to the human mind. And what Jesus would say is, put all your eggs in one basket. So to the kingdom. So. And you will reap bountifully. So sparingly. And the reverse is true. And so whether it's children, retirement, or whether it's sharing the gospel, if we sow sparingly, we reap sparingly. And this is evident from the scripture. I want you to look here because he repeats it three times in this text. I hope you have your Bible open. Verse 5. Paul says, willing gift, that's how we're to give, a willing gift, not an exaction or not out of covetousness. Verse 5, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Exaction in 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 the New Testament gives a picture of covetousness. We're going to get to what Paul's saying with that. Sowing, verse 6, sow bountifully, not sparingly. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He did not qualify it at all. He did not pare it back. He was not afraid to apply it in our lives to everything because he goes right into the next text and says, All grace in all areas of all of our life. That's what he that's how he applies it. Verse 7. At the end of that verse, we should give cheerfully, not under compulsion or begrudgingly. Now let me let me explain this so we don't miss it, because this is the this is a the first kernel we dig out. Sowing and reaping applies to all of our lives, and this is what Paul says. You should give willingly. In other words, no one should have to beg you to give. You should give of your heart, willingly give it away. Everything to the Lord. Why? Because you do not want to be covetous. Covetous people give also. Do you notice that Paul doesn't assume any Christian won't give? Paul assumes every believer will give. 
Because he doesn't give a category for those who don't give. He doesn't say there's some that don't give and then there's those who give willingly and then there's those who give covetously. No, he says there's those who give rightly, willingly, cheerfully, bountifully, and there are those who give wrongly. But everybody gives. The wrong is covetous, sparingly. And then the third one he says begrudgingly. Everybody, every Christian gives. Paul has no question about that. It's just are we giving out of the right motive or the wrong motive? Now the wrong motive first, okay, so we can wrap our minds around it. Covetousness. How could you give and be covetous? Because giving seems to be opposed to covetousness. No, it goes like this in the mind of a believer. Now how much do I have to give away? And how much can I keep for myself? And we shrouded in all kinds of things like I got to be wise, I got to think ahead, I got to plan, I got to look out for when I'm 80 years old and all those kind of things. We justify it, but what we're really saying is, God, how much do I have to give you? That's exaction, that's covetousness. How much do I have to give you so that I can feel guiltless about keeping the rest? That's the question in the coveter's mind. I'll give God one and keep five. I'll give God one and keep five. That's how it's played out in the mind of a coveter. Now, there's those who are bountiful and sparing. We might say that they are like Ananias and Sapphira. I think the great sin in Ananias and Sapphira's life is they wanted to give just enough. So that in the eyes of men, they were justified in their gifts. But they were not concerned with what God would think of their gift. They sowed sparingly. They said, we'll give him half of what we paid for. We know the real price, but we'll make the assumption that we'll make them assume we're giving everything we got for that piece of property. So they'll feel good about us. It's a sparing attitude. I'm going to give the littlest amount possible to get by. I think God will be pleased with that. Many people who give based on the Old Testament tithe give this way. Some of them are covetous. God, I just want to give you 10% because I want to keep 90. Some are saying, I want to sow just enough to get a little benefit from it, but I don't want to give all of it. That's, that's the attitude of one who spares in his sowing. I think the begrudging is, a, is also, instead of cheerful, is also present in our church. And it's present in attitudes like a lack of joy in our heart when we give. As if God is stealing from us when He takes a gift. And so I think these attitudes are very... But my question is this, for you and for me, is our heart motivation to give out of an actual love for the grace of God? Is that our motivation? Or is our motivation to give actually so that you do not, so that we do not feel guilty for keeping back what we really want to keep. It's present in our society. How come every time the Salvation Army has a drive? This is this thought. I'm not against giving the Salvation Army, okay, but I want to qualify that up front. Why is it that our attitude is always give them our leftovers and go buy new stuff for us? Why do we do that? 
Has anybody figured that out? I haven't. I just thought of that this week. They're having a drive. You know, homeless people have needs and they need clothes and they need couches or they need whatever. And we say, man, I got that dingy looking couch standing there. Nobody really likes to sit on it anyway. I'll give them that. Then I can go buy me a new couch. And we feel good. I've done my service. Without ever crossing my mind, go buy them a new couch and keep the dingy one. Why do I do that? I think part of it is that I'm a coveter. And I like new stuff. And I want to feel good about liking my new stuff so I give away my old stuff. So I feel good about my new stuff. So that when somebody comes over and says, hey, man, that's a new couch. It looks great. I can say, oh, yes, I gave my old one to the Salvation Army. I didn't even stay for my receipt because I'm not going to count it on my taxes. That's the American way. What Paul might be saying is, the Salvation Army has a drive. They need clothes for a family who's lost everything they've ever owned in a fire. Go buy them a new wardrobe. And keep your old ratty stuff. And nobody will ever know you did it. Because you're still wearing the same clothes. And that guy doesn't even know you gave it to him. So he can't thank you. So a little. Not sparingly, but bountifully. Compulsion. What is compulsion? That's when I guilt you into giving. It really is. And that happens every Sunday. Because... In churches all over this country because they pull out Malachi chapter 3 and they say, you are robbing God. Now, I want to get something straight. I find that abhorrent to the scripture. It makes me sick at my stomach. Because they're lying about the precious word of God. That tithe in the Old Testament is equal to a national tax. It was the temple fee that was paid for the benevolence and the welfare of everyone in Israel. It was what some people in our day call flat tax system. Every person in Israel, poor and rich, gave to the national treasury which was in the temple so that the priest could care for the needs of the poor. Tithing is a taxation. God never counted it as free giving. God never counted that national tax as free giving. And that is not the tithe that Abraham gave. That tithe in Malachi is not based on the tithe of Abraham, in my estimation. Abraham's tithe was before the law. What was Abraham giving? A free will offering of a tithe, 10% of all that he owned. God never asked him to do it. He did it of his own free will. It was willing, it was cheerful, and it was bountiful. The Malachi statement is about a national ingathering for the good of the whole nation. See, I think, not that it's equated, but I think when you pay your taxes, you accomplish what they were accomplishing through the temple. We don't have a temple. I'll tell you this. You find me a temple, I'll give my temple tax. Find the physical temple. Who's gathering it? Who's, who's, who's making sure it's given rightly? Show me that place and I'll give my tithe to it. 
but I will not give my tithe to a church or to men and call it God's work. God loves cheerful givers. God loves gifts out of bounty, not spare. And God calls on us to give willingly of all that we have. Did it not strike anybody odd that Paul could have quoted Malachi if that's what he wanted to reestablish? Why didn't he? Not one time, matter of fact, does Paul quote Malachi in a tithe. He never does. Jesus never quotes that Malachi passage and applies it to believers. Never. Why? If that's the standard, that's where they would have gotten it. But instead, he goes to another place in the Scripture we're going to see in just a moment. And he calls on us to sow for righteousness' sake. My question stands. Everywhere in the New Testament we see that we are to give based on the pattern God has given to us. He has given to us willingly, bountifully, and cheerfully. And we're to return in favor to give to everyone around us willingly, bountifully, and cheerfully. A man plants his spiritual crop according to the desire of his own heart. The last point of this message gives a clear picture of how we are not to give. We're not to give, in the last part I said, we're not to give covetously, sparingly, or begrudgingly. So how are we supposed to give? Well, look in verse 5. We're supposed to give willingly. This term, is the original, means to give out of a pure motivation from the depth of our heart. Every time we come to the house here to worship, to the house of worship... What we're saying when we give in that box or when we give to a needy person or when we give to the Salvation Army, what we're really saying if it is a godly gift and a rightly motivated gift is, God, you have given to me so that I can bless all people. So I want to be a blessing. The motivation is, God, take this gift and use it for your gospel's sake. God, for your own glory, take this. Don't let me be recognized. Let you be recognized in your great, mighty Work. We give with a pure heart. Six, verse 6, bountifully. What does the word bountifully mean? It's overflowing. We hold nothing back, Paul says. If you want to give with the right motivation, literally, we always use that, give me your checkbook and I'll tell you whether you're giving or not and all that kind of thing. This is saying, God, here's my checkbook. It's all yours. Now, God, help me make right decisions. What we need to be praying over our pay pay period is, God, help me make right decisions with all of it. When I purchase clothes, help me purchase clothes to your glory. When I go to the grocery store, let me purchase food for your glory. When I give to my church, let me give For your glory, when I give to that poor, downtrodden widow, let me do it as your hands and feet. When I take in the orphan, God, let it be that that's your hands and feet to that orphan. Let me be the Father on earth that you are in heaven. This is my prayer. That's how we give 100%. God is concerned with how we spend the money Monday through Saturday, not just Sunday. And so show me a man's checkbook and I'll show you nothing. It's just a checkbook. 
But let me ride with you for 10 or 15 days. Let me live with you that long. And let me see your thankfulness. Let me see your decision process. If God's ever given a thought in the process or not. And let me see if your heart's desire is, let me be your hands and feet to the world, God. And I'll tell you all about that man and whether he's giving from a right motive. I can't tell you anything from a checkbook. I can't, and neither could Paul. And so it comes down to our heart, and we don't like it. We don't like it. But that's true. The fact is our hearts have been regenerated. There's something different about us now. We've been reversed from our sinful, selfish nature so that our desire is to give and not receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. The Scripture says. Piper made it this example this way. He said, Our hearts are like magnets. Before we're saved, the pole that faces the world is to suck everything in. You know, we want it for ourselves. Mine, mine, mine. When we become regenerate, our heart flips around. And the opposite pole faces outward so that everything repels. I don't want it. I want to give. I don't want it to God. Take it. I don't want this. I hold it with an open hand. Please, Lord, don't let it become an idol in my life. That's become the hard attitude. That's why I can't tell anything about you based on nickels and dimes. Only about your heart. Only about your heart. The question that we all must contemplate is, is my heart motivated to give out of selfless sacrifice like Jesus? Or is it a true reflection of my heart that I am selfish in my base desire wanting to hoard the possessions that God has given me? I can't answer it for you. I can't. I can't answer it only for myself. I can't answer it for my wife. She might tell you, I try. I can't answer it for anyone except me. We cannot make a determination about our giving based on our ability. You can't make a decision based on what you have in your bank account. You must make a decision based on the plan of God's grace. Why do we make decisions that are dependent on our ability to supply the gift? Why do we make decisions based on our bank account? That's a question I asked. I came up with this. We view God as a taker and not a giver. We really do. Look at verse, there in the the passage, look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. I'm going to come to that quote because... Some of us wrongly applied that to God. That is about the giver, not God. He who supplies seed, that's God. He who supplies seed to the sower, bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God is a giver in the Scripture, not a taker. From Genesis to Revelation, God gives and gives and gives and gives. And what happens is, in our legalistic minds, we make God a taker. So we begrudgingly give Him what we give. We begrudgingly say, okay, God, if you require it, I'm going to give it. And God says, I abhor your sacrifices. I cast down your gifts and your offerings. 
I despise the fact that you say you will serve me. I serve you, God said. Jesus fulfilled it. He said, I serve you. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. God serves us. God gives. We don't. You know, the, the, the reality was sunk into me this week is this. If I don't give, what it really says about my heart is that it's questionable whether I'm regenerate. If my spirit is begrudging, it is under compulsion, it really says a lot about who I am internally. And so as I sat and thought and looked at the scripture, I said, oh God, help me because I'm selfish. Help me because at every turn I try to think of security for my family and for our church. Help me give, not because I have to, because you've given to me. Not because you require it, but because I run to it with joy in my heart. I mentioned in that verse 10 there, or 9, excuse me. A lot of you, when you read through that, maybe all your life you've seen that verse, that quotation. That's quoted from Psalm 112, verse 9. Paul picked up 112, 9. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor his righteousness endures forever. And we think that is a statement about God. It is not. If you read that in the context of Psalm chapter 112, you'll see this. That is a statement about you. If you sow bountifully, if you sow willingly, if you sow cheerfully, that's a statement about you, not about God. You say, but it says that He gives to the poor. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And it says that our righteousness will last forever. It will. It will. So where's the proof then? Well, we're running short here and we're hurrying to finish in the completion of this text. But the proof, I believe, is in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19, when Jesus makes His unequivocal statement, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where robbers steal and rust decays. Think about that today. Do not. That's an imperative. It is definite. It is a command. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because you'll be a coveter You'll be begrudging and you will not be cheerful in anything you do and you'll sow sparingly because your treasure is on the earth. He says, don't do it. What does he say in reverse of that in the following verse? Rather, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where robbers cannot steal and rust cannot decay. What? He is literally saying, take the blessing of God 
on this earth and put it in eternity. So you're here and you make whatever you make, six digits a year. You're a rich person in this society. You're in the $100,000 salary. Am I preaching against you? Absolutely not. You know why? Because God has blessed you with that. He has given you that job. He's given you the ability to have that job. And He has blessed your hand that you might prosper. And so what is your response? A Christian response is, it's not mine. It's 100% God's. And I'm laying up treasure in heaven. And you're here and you make $9,000 a year. And you say, I'm too poor to give. And God says, oh, no, you're not. Don't lay up for yourself treasure on this earth. You know, the most covetous people in all the world, most of the time, are poor people. The most begrudging and the most sparing are middle class. Not wealthy. Think about it. Bill Gates gives away hundreds of millions of dollars every year. Why? He's not worried about tomorrow. Right or wrong, I'm not saying he's a Christian. I'm just saying he's just not worried about it. But middle class America, we struggle. Because we think we don't have very much. I don't want to be poor and fall way down in the, in the, you know, the desperate. And I'm not really wanting to be rich. I just want to be secure. And Jesus says, do not lay up treasure, middle class. Sow it in heaven. Paul said, riches are a trap and many fall into it. And that applies to all of us. The point is that the one that is sowing here, that is distributing freely in this verse, the one who's giving to the poor and the one whose righteousness endures forever is the one who lays up treasure in heaven by giving all that he has for the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our obedience in this area of giving not only supplies for the needs of the saints, but it also supplies an opportunity for the saints to give glory to God. Why? Because the New Testament writers understand that God is the only one who gives. You will never see in the New Testament that anyone gave anything. When they gave, it says God gave. Conversely, no one's ever thanked. Paul never thanks anybody. Except God. Look at this text. He's writing to the Macedonians, about the Macedonians, to the people at Achaia. Does he say, thank you people at Corinth for giving? No, he says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. That's his reply every time when he talks to the Philippians. He says, you've shared with me in my burden. Thanks, I give thanks to God every time I remember you. I thank God. I don't thank you. The greatest response you could ever give to anyone is to say, I thank God for you. I don't thank God in against you. I thank God for you. I say, you're not the giver. God is. Grace is rooted in the gospel. How? This is the way that is rooted in the gospel. God is the giver. We are the receiver. We overflow in grace onto the lives of those who are around us. It's all about the grace of God. Not our willingness to give. Not our possessions. It's all about God and His treasure. God is at the center of this issue like all other issues. 
so we can join with Paul as he does in verse 15 in this passage. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And we can join him in Romans chapter 11 when he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him? Do you see that? Paul doesn't believe anybody gave anything to God. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Look at this and apply it to your giving. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. So when we say give to the Lord, what we're really saying is Lord give to yourself. Lord give to yourself and use me to do it. That's really what we're saying. Forever and ever to Him be the glory. Forever. Amen. What's the conclusion? Our motivations are all important in the area of giving. Why are the charismatics off a little in there? Because their motivation is about their gain. Their motivation is not doesn't seem to be many times the glory of God, but rather my Rolls Royce. Rolls Royce. We have to search our hearts in motivation for our giving. Are we people who are overflowing with the grace of God or are we simply medicating our guilt for having so much when we give? Danny Glover this week embraced the dictator of Venezuela. Embraced him on stage in front of the world. He hugged him around the neck and championed him as this great man. I thought, what causes a man who has benefited from capitalism as much as Danny Glover has? Let him ply his trade in Venezuela and see how rich he gets. What causes a man to do this? And my immediate response was this one. He's medicating his guilt for being wealthy. Inside he hurts because he is above the rest of the world. Above all but probably .00001% of the world's population. Danny Glover has more than anyone and he's guilty over it. And he doesn't know what to do. And so he has to go embrace communism, go embrace uh, a, a tyrant. This man in Venezuela is a tyrant. He murders people who oppose him. He, oppose, he grabs him around the neck and hugs him. Why? Because it makes him feel better. And we're doing the same thing often when we give. We're keeping what we want and we're giving what we don't want so we can say, I gave and I'm guilt-free now. That's our motivation, so we need to check our motivations. Another application is we must value God as the giver and not value our gifts. We have to value God as the giver. He is the giver. I am not. We must give to the budget of this church, the building project, missions, widows, orphans, missions in the world, all over the world. Why? We are simply conduits of grace. That's all we are. We are not the source of giving. That's the picture I want you to leave with. We're the hose pipe. We're not the source and we're not the one finally receiving the replenishing water that comes out the other end. We're daily being filled with the flowing river of life which overflows. Isn't that what the Scripture says? My cup runs over. We're trying to serve God as if we are the ones serving when in actuality He serves and He gives 
And He's so merciful as to use a Christian in that service and in that giving. And so the next time you hand a dollar to a man who needs a meal, you shouldn't puff your chest out. You should say, Oh God, You're such a merciful God. Give me more that I can give away for Your glory. We must give in the name and the glory of God alone. If we give for any other cause, then we cannot conclude with Paul, thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. We cannot put that at the end. The truth is, is you can't outgive God and neither can I. So I ask this question in close. How is it with you? I've had to look at my life. I don't like a lot of the things I see. Because many times I see my selfishness, my hoarding. I don't like it. But it's reality. And so it's not guilt. There's no condemnation in Christ. What has been my emotion? God, my emotion has been as I've seen this, Lord, you're so merciful. Because in my pride, you had every right to squash me like a gnat. And you hadn't done it. And so, Lord, you've given. Not so I can be secure. What is security? Not so that I can have wealth on this earth. What's that? You've given to me like Abraham so that I might be a blessing to all the nations. We talk about Abraham and his faith. There was nothing Abraham held back from God. Not even the promised child. Hannah Grayson was discussing that with me yesterday. Why did God, Daddy, why did God say lay Isaac on the altar and kill him? Why? He wanted to show his faith. That's what he wanted. So, is it recklessness? This is where I conclude. Is it recklessness to say, my family, my wealth, whatever it is, Myself, my life, my health, all of it is on the altar. A living sacrifice to God. And my desire is that He take it from me. All of it. Because if He takes it, it says, Jesus said, seed in the ground bears much fruit. Seed in the barn does nothing. Why have this mentality? Because in sowing we reap righteousness for eternity. Giving is central to the Christian life because it is a reflection of the internal ambition and heart of the regenerate man. That's what it is. Let's pray. Father, we, 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 we don't like what we see.